Welcome to What's So Funny, a comedy podcast where we talk about some of the most influential and controversial comedy albums from the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. Sit back, relax, and get ready to laugh. Here's your host, Dave Schwenson. Hi, I'm your host, Dave Schwenson, and today I'm joined by Logan Rashaw. Hi, Dave. Well, hi, Logan. How are you? I'm doing great today. How about you? Why don't you tell us a little something about yourself? I've been doing comedy for around five years now. In the past two, I've been producing the Cleveland Comedy Festival, and that's an annual festival here in Cleveland at Playhouse Square. Very nice. And it takes place every November. Yeah, I remember when uh, the Cleveland Comedy Festival started, and that's really a great deal. I love comedy festivals in all those cities. So, Dave, what's been going on with you lately? Well, Logan, let me tell you. Uh, (laughs) Actually, I'm working on finishing a new book. My former book called How to Be a Working Comic deserves some kind of a sequel, so I'm working on that and getting ready to do some more of my comedy workshops coming up in Chicago and Cleveland, so I'm pretty excited about that. I'm also excited about this new version of What's So Funny, where not only are we listening to comedy albums from the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, but we'll also take a look back at the life of the comedians we're talking about and what was going on during that time. The album we're listening to today is from Mort Saul. It's a 1958 album called The Future Lies Ahead. And this is a, this is a social satire, very political album by Mort Saul. And what's most interesting is that it's actually one of the first stand-up, modern stand-up comedy albums ever recorded. Yeah, there was one recorded actually three years before this called At Sunset. Which is weird because he has the first recorded modern comedy album with The Future Lies Ahead as far as release date, but he also has the first live modern stand-up recording with At Sunset, which was recorded in 1955, right. but came out a few months after this without his approval. Yeah, I call it a bootleg. Yeah. But what's interesting, too, I don't want people to misunderstand, because this was not the first recording of stand-up comedy. No, definitely not. Yeah, they had comedy albums. I don't know if we can go, say, as far back as the 30s, but in the 40s, early 50s, there were a few comedians out there that worked very blue, and they really could not get away with that type of language in those days. They could be busted for, they could be arrested for obscenities. Many of these comedians from vaudeville and the smaller clubs, they recorded albums of their dirty jokes. All right, well, let's get right into it with our first clip today from Mort Saul. This is from his album, The Future Lies Ahead, which is a very classic comedy album. It was recorded in 1958 at the uh, Hungry Eye. All right, let's set the scene for what was going on now. This was 1958. In the White House, you had Eisenhower was the president, Richard Nixon was your vice president, and then the space race and the Cold War was going on, and it seemed like everybody was looking everywhere else for communists. The Hungry Eye is very proud to announce the next president of the United States. We're making records here. I hope this won't, uh, I just want to explain what all these mics for. I don't want to do an imitation of the president, and I don't have Jim Haggerty here, so. uh, (laughs) I have Sherman Adams, though, in the back. At any rate, Sherman Adams, no, the president and uh, and Sherman Adams and Arthur Godfrey and Tony Marvin. It kind of works out that way. Anyway, we're making records here, and this cable goes back, and the recording engineer is Herbert Philbrick, whom you may know. (laughs) Now, (laughs) I want to, uh, before I dig the brick wall, I'm still a bohemian. I don't want any of you to think that I sold out. And uh, the generation is now in style, isn't it? The beat generation. Anyway, I wanted to mention here, 
before we go any farther, that President Eisenhower is going to run for a third term, and I thought that should take precedence over homecoming speeches and all things like that. And uh, he made a speech last night, which got a, a seven on NBC. It says, right? and, uh, and, on the, uh, and Zorro got an 18. Well, anyway, so. President Eisenhower is going to run for a third term, and in the meantime, or at least he said he would, Vice President Nixon has his hand on the switch, and uh, I was in the East when the president got sick, and Vice President Nixon moved in and started appearing on all these magazines, and he sort of came of age here at the end of the year, and uh, he's right, and he got his glasses, he got those new glasses and all, and uh, it was wrought iron frames, right, remember those? So, anyway, President Eisenhower and, uh, was depending on Vice President Nixon to keep his hand on the throttle, and he was, uh, sort of, he was on all these magazines like Time and Newsweek and Life, and almost every magazine with the exception of True, which has a hidden significance, which I'm not, anyway, so, so, Anyway, by <laughs> neutral colors. So at any rate, the Vice President Nixon, as you know, was supposed to go to the NATO meeting. Uh, there, anyway, he's, he's in charge of calling eggheads back. That's what it says here. And he's going to woo them for the administration. So uh, several eggheads have been called back, including Dr. Oppenheimer, who was granted amnesty this week. And, uh, <laughs> and he is taking a quick course in German, so he may join the others defending our country, right? So I kind of, anyway, thank you. Thank you. So, Anyway, I might add, you know, that I haven't, I've been working with nothing but jazz all year, and I haven't uh, been working with any folk singers. I've been away from the womb, you know, and <laughs> I, I got to tell you, so I've been working with, uh, with uh, all the jazz people, and uh, I haven't, uh, I, uh, one, I saw one folk singer in New York, but then it was like a vacation, you know, it didn't mean anything, and it was a guy uh, at the Waldorf who was wearing a shirt, a velvet shirt, just kind of skin tight, open to the navel, you know, one of those fellas? <laughs> And he didn't have one. That's what I wanted to tell you about. <laughs> so, so, at any rate, right? Which is either a show business gimmick, of course, or the ultimate rejection of mother, which right? right. Well, anyway. So, right? I know, getting into psychology here, I want to forget my political conscience. Right? So, we were on, at any rate, we were on the road, and when I, uh, I uh, we went out with uh, uh, Dave, both of us went out with Dave Brubeck, and, uh, who is, of course, an alumnus of this area, and we uh, uh, did a tour through the Ivy League, brainwashing students, and we went up through uh, some great schools, a lot of schools like St. Lawrence and uh, Cornell, a lot of those, and a few outside schools that aren't Ivy League, but these students are allowed to wear the clothing anyway, which is a step ahead. <laughs> our, right? I know, I think better understanding is coming out of all of this. So, we, <clears throat> we wound up the tour in Portland, Maine on Saturday night, and those of you who haven't been in Maine, you know, you hear all the jokes about Philadelphia? Well, we were in Maine on Saturday night, which is kind of depressing, and uh, we're supposed to work, and there were a lot of rumors that uh, Brubeck didn't want to work because it was Mozart's birthday. There was one of those folklore things going, right? <laughs> and he wants to, right? He wants, said, well, he wants to spend it with his kids. We all have a thing, you know, and so, that's what he, so uh, I went into town with this other fellow in the unit who's a bachelor, we went into town, and uh, we went to see what was shaking in, in Portland, Maine at night. So, right, and it's kind of a fantasy we're living in. So we went to this cab driver, and uh, I don't want you to think we're like that, you know, but you must remember what men are like in war. It's that kind of a show tonight. So we went to this cab driver, and we said to him, where's the action? This kind of masculine sort of. So, so he took us to this place where they fish illegally. See, you know, that's <laughs> Now, these comedians all have their stories about life on the road. And when uh, Mort Saul refers to Philadelphia, you know, it's the old W.C. Fields joke, right? I spent a week in Philadelphia one night.
<laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that still would transfer to today's comics, too, all the stories about being on the road. But even the political stuff, if you just change the names of the politicians, it yes. holds up. Yeah, truth. Yeah. Right? Truth, justice, and the American way. But, you know, it's really a like a time capsule. It is, absolutely. It's a whole who's who of the 50s. Yes. And, you know, we recognize the names, of course, Eisenhower and Nixon. But... And there's fun ones like Oppenheimer that you yeah. have. Go back on Wikipedia and figure out who that was just yes. to refresh your memory. Yeah, and then someone were going through the scandals at the time. And when was something by Mort Saul not political, by the way? He seemed to really get a very first political comic satire that he did. He was known for that at the time. You know, we're talking early, mid-1950s. There had been no one around that doing that since, I think, Will Rogers. And that had to be, what, the 30s? Way before our time. Yeah, at this time, a lot of comics who were around were kind of doing those jokes that we hear, like, take my wife, for example, those sorts of jokes. And this is one of the first people who really talked about everything that was topical and news of the day. Well, to be quite honest about Mort Saul, he's the one that changed everything. He really is. I mean, as far as the modern comedy, what we look at is now is doing monologues. The late-night TV hosts, everyone from Lenny Bruce to Woody Allen, to they all point to Mort Saul as being that influence. Because you're right. Logan, <laughs> you're, you're right. Before Mort Saul, the comics were just doing shtick. They would do, uh, they'd be all wearing their suits, and they had their polished act. They did their same act every time. And the funny thing about that, too, this is before television, before the advent of comedy clubs. A lot of these old-time comics were doing the same act. Yeah, or they were sharing bits with each other yeah. back and forth. They were doing the exact same jokes, just in different venues or different parts of the country. And then Mort Saul came along, and he just changed everything. Yeah, he would go into jazz clubs. He wouldn't have the full suit. Instead, he uh, was very underdressed by those standards of the day. He would go in with a button-up shirt and a cardigan. He was a hipster. The newspaper. Like, like he said, he was a hipster. Yeah. You know. I mean, by today's standards, that'd be like going on stage in shorts or a flannel. Yes. But so today, it looks like he's still dressed up, but back then, that was something you didn't do. And he would just walk up with a newspaper and start reading the front page to people. He would read the newspaper during the day. He would read it. He would have ideas. He knows what's going on in the world. And just his comedic mind, whatever, his sense of humor would take over. So he would just go on stage and read these articles out of a newspaper, but add his own take, his own opinion to this that was funny. Yeah, he'd have like a rough outline almost of what he's going to do, but he would, when he performed in jazz clubs, he almost acted like a jazz musician himself. He would ad-lib and go in different directions, drop stories in the middle of telling them and move on to something else. Wherever his mind wanted to go, he would just follow it, whether he knew where it's going to end or not. Well, it was so fascinating. It threw everyone else for a loop because there was no other comic like that. You can find a documentary about The Hungry Eye, I think, on some of the streaming sites. But I saw the owner actually talk about Mort Saul a little bit. And it was so funny because when Mort started, it was one of his friends dragging him to The Hungry Eye, asking if he could perform. They're like, we've got this guy. He's very funny. He's a good comedian. He's just out of the service. He's having a breakdown. We need to do something with him. <laughs> and the owner was like, okay, well, we'll put him up. What's the worst that could happen? And he yeah. watched Mort, and he just went, well... It's a jazz club. At the very least, the audience is going to be polite. If they understand the joke or not, that's okay. And then he said he would look in the crowd and see people nudging their friends, asking, what's that even mean? And then the other friend would be like, it doesn't matter. That was the punchline. <laughs> yeah, and not everyone was getting the jokes at all times because he was just so rapid fire. Yeah. Uh, rebel without a pause is exactly. what they called him. So one important thing in that first clip is how Mort Saul brought up Herbert Philbrick and Richard Nixon. And for me, it's kind of interesting just to hear about Richard Nixon as a younger politician, 
because I don't think most people today really think of him before he was president. But there was a time where he was sort of an upstart, up-and-coming Republican, which is crazy to get this sort of perspective in comedy. Yeah. But also the mention of Herbert Philbrick, who was an ad exec that was involved with the Communist Party and the FBI. Well, he infiltrated, he infiltrated, he infiltrated it yeah, for on the behalf FBI. of them. So you got to remember, this is when uh, Joseph McCarthy was out there with the big uh, blacklisting. Right. Of many entertainers because they were believed to have something to do with the Communist Party. And this was a topic that Mort Saul loved to get into. He was really interested in communism rising in America. He was interested in McCarthyism and later it would kind of lead to him being sort of a conspiracy theorist in his own way. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what uh, really, I guess, uh, set him off, politics and opinions. And so here we are, 1958. He's already talking about all this. And matter of fact, let's just use that right now to get into another clip by Mort Saul. This is from his album, The Future Lies Ahead. I did want to say a couple of words about the Beat Generation, if I can, <laughs> because I really saw it up close. I was working in Greenwich Village. Uh, lucky me. And uh, while I was down there, I, I was, uh, it was kind of exciting uh, in uh, New York City because the IRT stopped running. There was kind of a panic there. And people were learning to live off the land. You know how New Yorkers are. So... <laughs> So we went, so uh, it was uh, really a kick though. So uh, while I was in Greenwich Village, uh, some of you read, uh, a spy was arrested there named Colonel Rudolf Abel, who was the first uh, Russian spy to be arrested in this country in 13 years. It was kind of, you know, a real morale builder for a lot of us. Because, you know, right? You know, and he was arrested by the field office of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And they called in New York and called up Washington and said, we found a Russian spy in the village. And uh, you probably read about his trial in Life magazine. And uh, they said, we found this Russian spy. And uh, of course, the Washington people have a typical distrust of field offices. And uh, they said, ah, oh, come on now, you know, stop playing at cloak and dagger. You know what you mean? What'd you get? You know, what is he, a school teacher? You know, or are you sure he isn't a writer or something? And they said, no. And is he addicted to folk music and all that? Having kind of a checklist. I said, said, no, he's a spy. You know, we wouldn't kid you. You know, it doesn't happen this often, you know? And, you know, it only happens once. And the guys in Washington were saying, how do I know it's real? There was a lot of that. So the problem was whether, how to evaluate this thing. See, because we hadn't had any spies for a long time. And the guys in Washington were justified in their cynicism, I think, because we hadn't had any spies for a long time. And the Russians, meanwhile, had had all kinds of spies, not real ones, but they're unscrupulous. And I have a lot of student friends who are in Europe, and the Russians would always arrest them. They'd always uh, be around, you know, the Eastern Zone on Sunday with their rollies, you know? And, <laughs> And the Russians would throw them in prison for the rest of their lives, you know, or the end of the Fulbright, which is the same thing in our group. I don't know about, right? It's a very dependent, very dependent kind of. So when they are, so we, we had never had a spy and we tried to do, you know, better in the Olympics and build a better car and a lot of things like that. But we never had a spy and people began to get depressed uh, for several years. And uh, it got so bad, as you recall, for a while they had a committee to find spies. That was their job. And they used to travel around and try to find spies. And they were pretty good guys, but let's face it, you know, if there's none to be had, there's none to be had. So uh, there was a kind of a retaliatory thing going on. And for a long time, uh, you remember that there was a kind of a Cold War, the seesaw. And every time the Russians would put an American in jail, this committee would put an American in jail. But that didn't quite meet the need. Remember this? So. So, the, right? so then they got Colonel Abel, so a lot of us were happy. And then he was brought into federal court in Philadelphia and had all these people who lived around him in the village who had known him for seven years. And they were all uh, people, you know, government witnesses, and they're all people who, uh, you know, read poetry in front of jazz groups, people like that, and wear duffel coats and sandals, and kind of real revolt people. And they had, uh, uh, you know, and people who paint with rollers and people who make jewelry and everything. So they, were, uh, they all came in and they said that they knew Abel for seven years when he had moved on to McDougal Street in the village. They had come in uh, with a welcome wagon, you know, to welcome him with, you know, hashish and long pipes and all the other value. Anyway, so they said the government prosecutor asked them if they knew he was a Russian spy because they're trying to build a conspiracy case. And these people all said, oh, yeah, you know, quite openly. You know, when he moved in, we asked him what he did. And, uh, 
he said, you know, I'm a Russian spy, you know. And then all these artists would say, well, that's the village, you know, why? <laughs> <laughs> Exciting. All right. Now we have. <laughs> now you talk about a rapid fire delivery. Well, Mort that's Saul. That's why he got that nickname, the rebel without a pause. That's he just right. kept going through the jokes. Sometimes he would talk over people's laughter and just well, transition straight from one joke to the other. He, he did that, though. I read this about Mort Saul that he was worried people weren't going to laugh. Oh, really? Yes. So he was just he, trying to fill any silence? Yeah, he wasn't going to stop. He was worried, just keep going, you know. And uh, so he he did not stop. He didn't really work with a lot of pauses there. But it's so intelligent is what he's talking about, you know, about the president. And, Whatever and, he's saying, whether you can follow it or not, depending on the bit, it sounds like he knows what he's talking about. Right. And the thing is, they called him an intellectual comedian. And he laughed about that in an interview I read with him. He said, I wasn't even a C student. How are they calling me that? <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, his whole storytelling style is fantastic. It actually is very common now as like the late night monologue style. Mm-hmm. That's what it sounds like we're listening to. It sounds like how Carson would start his shows or even today's late night hosts. Well, sure, yeah, all the late night hosts. I mean, it all came. It's all built on this foundation. Yes, from Mort Saul. You know, again, what he was talking about in the 1950s with Russian spies. Oh, the other thing I like, too, is because he's really from the jazz generation. You know, like Lenny Bruce. Right. You know, they were like cool cats is how you can describe them. Yeah, almost like, almost beatniks. Uh, no, no, they were before the beatniks. You know, they were the jazz guys. And then they were talking about the beat generation coming after that. That was the beats. Okay. The, the beatniks and the, the folk singers and things. So he's making fun of someone trying to read poetry in front of a jazz group, you mm-hmm. know. But, you know, they was really talking about the folk singers, which he liked that. He came up out of the folk clubs, too. But when he was talking about the village and different things, I see the generational gap. You know, you had Mort Saul, and then after that would be like the Bob Dylan kind of generation coming in. And uh, so I, I do see the difference in there. And I do relate comedy a lot to music. Well, yeah, certainly with the changes that happen, especially in this generation, you see him leading into something new. Yeah. He's very kind of aggressive for the 50s, but then, like you said, Lenny Bruce comes from this, so yeah, sort of takes on that mantle of pushing the envelope throughout well, who, the 60s. Who was it? The real, they called it Sick Nick Comedy, I think, at that time. Uh, Sick Nicks. And it was led by Mort Saul, also included Lenny Bruce, and also Dick Gregory. Since you brought up Dick Gregory, I, he's got this one quote on an album that I love where... He's talking about the comparisons people made between him and Mort Saul, and he says, a lot of people are saying you're the black Mort Saul, and I think Mort Saul's the white Dick Gregory. And they were just so entwined as comedians. Well, it was a completely different time. That's why I love doing this show, because we get to look back at how these comedians and their material and everything developed through what was going on at the time, but he was not doing anything that the other comics were doing before. Uh, he took it in a completely different direction. Yeah, he was doing things that people weren't really supposed to talk about in front of a crowd. And he was making that his entire act. And it's really living on the edge. You know, talk about walking a tight wire because you didn't know if it was going to go or not. And again, that's why he was talking so fast. <laughs> it's right. like, if this is not going to work, you know, they're going to laugh at this or they'll laugh at that. But he did say if the audience wouldn't go with him, he knew enough he could change it. He didn't have an act where he had to stay with it all the way through beginning to end. He could change things. He wouldn't just focus on politics or social issues, too. He would attack, you know theism as well. And that leads us to uh, our next clip here from The Future Lies Ahead by Mort Saul. All right, well, let's take a listen, see what he has to say. 
Now, are there any groups which we have not offended in some small way? I've gone into every field except theism. I do that on the next show, and I'll tell you all about the Billy Graham rally in New York, which I went to in your interest, kind of a consumer's test. And uh, I, went, I did, I went to see him, and uh, he's uh, pretty wild, and uh, he's got, I thought it quite significant that his annual report is in the paper for the 57 Crusade, the Save Souls, and it didn't get into the religious section on Saturday or Sunday, but it's on the financial page, which I think is significant, right? Uh, so, that's, well, he did very well. There's nothing wrong with, you know, paying your way. So, at any rate, <laughs> I, that isn't what I meant. I thought I heard some bowling upstairs. So, <laughs> so anyway, he, uh, he's kinda, he does that all the time. You've got the wrong connotation. I think too many of you are free associating. Hey, you know, that didn't mean, no, that's not that. You know, that's, uh, Graham does that all the time. He's always reading and looking up, you know, which even people in the field will admit is an assumption. We don't know. I mean, we think, right? He does that, and he always says to his audiences, do you believe? That's his big cheerleading thing. And the audiences always say, you know, they're very vociferous. They're kind of a cross between the bonus march and, you know, jazz at the Philharmonic. Anyway, they're, they're, <laughs> it's known everywhere. And uh, they always say, you know, he always says to them, do you believe? And the audience always lays it on him, you know, like, you know it. You know, like, <laughs> oh, sure. And then, <laughs> so, <laughs> And then he, he, they always, uh, you know, and then a couple of minutes later, he'll be in original sin or something. All of a sudden, he'll stop, you know, like they never said it. And he'll say, do you believe? And then they lay it on him again. And then a couple of minutes later, he'll do it again. He does this all the time, you know. So he obviously is insecure in these areas. I mean, there's no other, right? No. Yes. So, thank you. So I'll have more to say about him later. I don't want to give all this away, but it's, uh, it's really weird. It, it was a very weird rally. And uh, at the rally, you read about this kook who went out, this kind of weird guy, went out and started collecting money with the others. He's not really an usher. But, you know, he's putting money in the bag and everything. And nobody knew because the sun was in back of him forming a nimbus, you know, which is suggestive. Right? So, hey, you're very well schooled in this area. So I was, uh, you know, and I would meanwhile I was taking pictures of Graham like crazy because I wanted to show something to the folks back home. And then later on I developed a role and it was blank, which is really weird, but I don't... <laughs> anyway, so, so then this guy collected all the bread and uh, he said... Uh, collected all the money and he started to split with the money and these two policemen caught him at the gate at the rally and they brought him to Billy Graham's feet for salvation and he said, what are you doing with the money? And he said, I took the money in an effort to get closer to God by eliminating the middleman, of course. <laughs> so, thank you. Now, we'll, uh, we'll see. <laughs> we'll close this off now, cut the tape and say goodnight and we'll see you in about an hour. Thank you very much. That is so funny. And, you know, he's talking about things. Mort Saul is talking about things that you didn't talk about on stage. Well, just the way that, that clip starts shows how taboo it was at the time. I mean, he makes one joke about a religious event being on the financial page. And then he kind of has to do three more jokes backing up from it to say, like, oh, you people are putting words in my mouth. Oh, you're free associating. Because he kind of has to ease the audience into this idea before he can even really dive in and start making jokes about Billy Graham. Now, here's the thing, too, about Mort Saul that... Uh, he was the most famous comedian in the country. Again, Time, Time Magazine cover, 1960, 1961, whatever it was. the first comedian to be on the cover of Time, First too. comedian. That's how popular it was. That's how big this guy was. And then his career just took a nosedive. And there was a pretty good reason for it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he, you know, came up as a big comedian and was at one point hired to be a writer for JFK. 
And yeah, they see, even the politicians friends. liked his material, by the way. Yeah. You know, Adelaide Stevenson was big at that time. Hubert Humphrey. They weren't crazy when he, about him making jokes about them later on, though. No. Uh, they thought he was on their side, which was never really Mort's style. He was attacking both sides always. Sort of like how we'll talk about each other after the show's over. Like, right, right, absolutely. We won't like that. <laughs> <laughs> he started writing for JFK, and they became quite close. Yes. And then after uh, JFK's assassination, he was just very hung up on it and became kind of a conspiracy theorist and would talk about it incessantly on stage. Yeah, he had, uh, they, they formed a commission after Kennedy was assassinated in 1963, the Warren Commission, they came out with what they called the Warren Report. Basically, it said one guy did it. There was no conspiracy. And, of course, Mort Saul didn't buy it. And similar to what Lenny Bruce was doing at the end of his career, going on stage talking about his obscenity trials and reading court papers and different things, Mort Saul got carried away. I shouldn't say got carried away. It became his main focus the JFK assassination, and the conspiracy theories. Yeah, I mean, he would go on stage with the Warren Report and start reading off things and saying what he found as logical flaws, and it became almost more of a lecture than a comedy routine at Yes, times. yeah, and it really affected his career. Like, he went, oh, let's say, like, in one year, maybe 1964, he made a million dollars that year. And I read this, I can't remember where, but the next year, his earnings were down to $19,000. That's how hard of a hit he took. He had contracts with places like CBS and NBC that were big, high-paying contracts to create his own shows, and those started disappearing as he got more and more involved with talking about the JFK assassination and getting more involved in politics at the time. Yes, and it affected him through the rest of the decade. I know he tried to make a, or he did make somewhat of a comeback in the 70s, you know, when they called it the counterculture, when you had, now you had George Carlin and Richard Pryor, some of these comedians talking about what's going on in the country and critiquing it, and sort of like Mort Saul, the next generation. And they all looked up to and respected Mort Saul, and now he was sort of almost on their level. Well, he came out later on with an album called America. Yeah, he uh, made an album called America in 1987, and then he actually brought it back and tore down it again in the late 90s, but just changed out some of the material so it was updated to be about things like Bill Clinton. And lucky for him, most of the mistakes politicians make, they seem to keep making. All right. Well, the one thing about Mort Saul, too, I mean, you have to realize how far back he goes. We're going back to World War II. When he was 15 years old. He dropped out of school and enlisted to fight in World War II. It took his mother two weeks to find him and drag him out by telling him how <laughs> old he really was. So he's always been involved with the, the government. And he talks a little bit about that in this next clip we're going to listen to. Now, we ought to say a few words about survival. There's going to be a civilian defense raid Tuesday afternoon, and it's, uh, they're talking about bombs here. And a lot of us don't worry about the bomb because we're busy uh, with the Russians in outer space. And then after that, uh, people worry next about the intercontinental ballistic missiles, and, uh, which uh, Secretary Dulles denied the Russians have, you recall, uh, some time ago. Or he said, they'll have to prove it to me. Did you read that? Well, this is a... <laughs> Unfortunately, they are willing to oblige him, I feel. <laughs> and uh, even though there's a lack of party discipline, I feel my fate is entwined with his, in a sense. So I'm kind of nervous in general about the Army anyway, uh, having been in the National Guard. And I think that you'll find uh, college kids have really gotten off the Army thing because uh, during World War II, everybody was really hot for the program, you know. And, you know, I wanted wings. Everybody was out of their minds. Or everyone was out of his mind. Got to watch that. And uh, it's a, a kind of sloppy habit. It's a collective noun, isn't it? Well, even though the Russians are ahead up there, we may lose the battle for language here. So anyway, right, that's for English majors because they have nothing else in life. I know. So I, I did that too. Anyway, uh, a little later, if there are enough college people here, I do all the jokes about statistics. I have a lot of offbeat, non-commercial jokes about, uh, of course, I took at Cal once. 
called statistical analysis. And it was a guy in the course who used to make up all his computations, and he never used sigma. He used to use his own initials. Be right, because he was a standard deviation. That's what I was going to say. All right. So anyway, I, so it's, <laughs> that's for the intellectuals. Actually, if you understand that joke, you shouldn't be here. You should call a government office because you're needed desperately. Right? I know. Symbol there. Yeah, what I kind of find interesting, too, about him is when he talks about government and, uh, you know, you talk about the bomb and, and the Russians and space. This is the 50s. You know, the Cold War was really going on. You know, he enlisted in World War II. He was 15 years old and they got him out. Then when he was 18, he went and enlisted again, got in the Air Force. But the war was pretty much over at that time, so he was stationed. I think he was up in Alaska for like five years. Uh -huh. But I think that's when he realized that he didn't like the government telling him what to do. He didn't like authority all that much. Yeah, he wasn't a great soldier. He was really ready to fight for the cause when he went into it. But yeah. after a few years, he was not someone who was, you know, very rigid in how he would act. I think they demoted him down to line cook for a while. He got KP for three months because he grew a beard and wouldn't shave. And yeah. then he wouldn't wear a hat when he was supposed <laughs> to. And next thing you know, he's peeling potatoes and washing pans. One thing I noticed in this clip is while he's talking about the army, he says there and then pulls back and says, whoops, I should have said his. Yes. Which is almost the exact opposite of like PC culture today. Yes. So today, if he was talking, he would have said, oh, his, whoops, I mean there. And it'd be way more progressive. And it's just so oh. funny that back then... The language was different. Very observant, Logan. That's yeah. very good. That's why I like working with a younger uh, co-host <laughs> here. <laughs> but you're correct on that. This last clip that we're going to play for you, it's actually one of Mort Saul's most famous routines. It's a little bit sillier and lighter than what we've heard earlier today, but it's a great, whimsical, kind of funny routine about bank robbery. Something that was happening in the 50s? Quite often. <laughs> <laughs> it's happening today. Three guys with it. It's a great weapon. And the guy was saying, well, I wouldn't go with anything but a carbine because it's semi-automatic. And with eight shots, I could generally knock off four guys because I was a dead shot. And we're talking back and forth. And one guy was saying a bazooka is the only answer because you can go through anything, you know, and, uh, and get at the people you're after. And uh, one veteran of a more conservative stripe reminded them that they were only remembering the good times. You know, what about the other days? And I said, so I am very bitter tonight. So they, uh, they said, let's get our just desserts from society, or words to that effect. And they got uh, in their cars and drove uh, separately because they just met, you know, just getting to the Bank of America at Union and Webster. And they went in to rob it, but the police were hipped on it. The cops are very bright, you know, got a great grapevine. And they said, let's go down and try and tape this and make it uh, admissible court evidence. So they got an Ampex 600 and they went down there with these 10 inch reels of tape and they had two Telefunken microphones for binaural, you know, and uh, they're made by fully recovered Germans. So they walked. <laughs> Been over there lately? Oh boy. So uh, they haven't got nuclear weapons, so it's next month. They're gonna, all right. So they, <laughs> so they walked in with the tape and uh, they put it under the cash drawer and they got one of the tellers who was a college graduate and uh, who was working in the banks. Fellow had majored in English and public speaking and was working in a bank until there's an opening in the field. He's, so, and so at any rate, this is futility. So he said, uh, he said, what do you want? And the cop said, we want to tape these guys robbing the bank. Now we're gonna get under your cash drawer with this tape recorder and we'll mount the two microphones so we can get a stereo balance and all you got to do is make them talk and we'll cover you. We got guns down here. We'll just sit down here and smoke, you know, and record it. So uh, the teller said, great, you know, I'm with you, I'm ready. So then the gangsters walked in unaware of this conspiracy and uh, they said, stick them up or whatever part of the ritual is, you know, I never robbed the bank, but you know. So he said, you have to project here. So they said, stick them up and the tellers looked down, you know, and started the switch there on the tape and then he said, what? You know, so in an effort to get a level, is that right? 
<laughs> so it's a little high, you know. So he said, uh, they said, stick them up. He said, oh, hands, what? So they said, ah, right, come on out, you know, knock it off, quit stalling. Go get the money out of the vault. So uh, he said, the money, oh, yes. Well, he said, what right do you think you have? And of course, he was looking down at the cops. They're telling him, you know, come on, you know, we're going. This thing is going on. He said, what right do you think you have to abscond with the funds of honest people in society because you're essentially parasitic? So... Uh, one of the gangsters said to him, you know, well, why the economic theory? You know, because it's a, so, it, you know. And uh, so then the teller said, well, you know, I'm not essentially a Marxist or anything. And a gangster said to him, I don't care if you're daddy warbucks, you know, go get the money. So he said, well, it's not a matter of the money. He said, it's not a matter of damage to the bank. We're insured. It's a matter of damage to you because emotionally, you're going to have to go from city to city and, you know, live as a scavenger off society. So, uh, these gangsters looked at each other and they had a meeting and then they went up to him and they said, have you gone to college? And he said, yes, I've had some uh, ca casework, social work there. He said, I, psychiatric social worker, that's what I was trained to be. So uh, the gangster said, we see in, in union there. And then they said, all right, we come from a broken home. And will you get the money? Come on. So, so by this time, of course, they had the tape, you know, they had their reel. And uh, the police came out and he said, good going there. And he, he had citizens arrest. And they arrested these guys and they had the tape and they went downtown and they went right back here to the city hall and they played the tape for a judge and they made a kind of a Mickey Mouse stereo setup in the courtroom. They put the judge in the middle for orthophonic living presence. <laughs> and they went, <laughs> and they put, uh, they put uh, a speaker on each end of the courtroom and a cop stood in front of each one with his legs about eight inches apart to act as a baffle for the highs, right? perfection and they played it for him and the judge listened to it in stereo you know and you know how stereo is coming all around them you know I saying stick them up and we come from a broken home and everything and he listened to it and he said boy that's the end you know he says really great and the cop said well we didn't plan it you know we don't want to be hypocrites you know it's just an accident we all just sort of fell in and it came off we're pretty happy with it but it couldn't be done again you know because we couldn't get the same guys and it wouldn't be you know <laughs> so uh, the gangsters were then sentenced to prison and they were dragged away kicking and screaming yelling about the dichotomy of guilt in society because they felt on the one hand, you know, that they were morally wrong in trying to rob a bank, but that on the other hand, the group really wasn't ready to record yet, but had been pushed, right? <laughs> Sing a thing about All right, good. Now, and uh, for those of you who think I've been essentially negative, I want you to know that an American sport car finished in a Le Mans race Friday night in France, so things are looking up, and we sent a car over there, and we sent a Thunderbird over, 58 Thunderbird, the four-seater, which is our sports car over here, and uh, <laughs> yes, they laughed, but nevertheless... <laughs> They, it's a, the car, it uh, finished the race. It didn't win, but that's all right, you know? That's, uh, I, he finished, even though his radio and heater had gone out. Hanging on. <laughs> so, 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 I want to thank you all. Oh, my gosh. I love that bit yeah. about the bank robbers. Any type of absurd comedy where it's a long story that goes in a weird direction, yeah. I'm all in on. It's like a, it's very Gary Goldman. It's very funny. It's, uh, you know, but when they weren't ready to record yet, the band. <laughs> it's like, you know, relating it to music. And then, of course, American car technology. Right. It's already talking about that. <laughs> or um, even just trying to get the levels of the bank robber. I love that yes. imagery. Yeah. What? Just getting yeah. the levels? <laughs> yeah, that's just a famous bit by Mort Saul. And it is so funny. And, uh, again, based on what he was reading about in the papers. Bank robbery, he's going to talk about it. American car going over to Le Mans and great, racing against all these European models. He talks about it. And that's what he did. And, you know, Mort Saul really did have, he has had a long career. Yeah, he was really important to the comedy industry. And I, I know comedians, his, comedians are into the history of comedy and where they came from. They look back and who was an influence. And you could trace it back to Mort Saul. 
you can definitely see hints of Woody Allen, even some Steve Martin in some of the clips that we've heard before today. You know, it was a good joke before Mort Saul. What? You go to vaudeville, you see like a comedy team. They come out and say, hey, guess what I got in my hand? An egg or a tomato? And the straight man would go, hmm, I don't know, an egg? And the comic would go, no, a tomato, and smash it in his face. <laughs> that was what people were watching in those days. And so, then you had Mort Saul coming out and talking about what's in the news. That's how big of a difference this was. Yeah, I guess we didn't see many people on vaudeville doing long monologues about FDR. No, no, it just didn't happen. And he's still performing today. Yeah, so you can catch Mort Saul monthly, as of this recording at least, at the Throckmorton Theater, and he live streams the events on Facebook and Periscope. He's still just talking about the current events and taking questions from the audience. The only difference is he's not using a, a newspaper anymore. Well, to think about it, who does? Right. <laughs> <laughs> We're all online anyway. Well, Logan, it's been a real pleasure doing this with you today and talking about the great Mort Saul. Really a legend. It's been a lot of fun, Dave, and uh, thank you everyone for listening. This has been What's So Funny. What's so funny? And uh, I'm Dave Schwenson. And I'm Logan Rishaw. And we will catch you later. Keep laughing. You've been listening to What's So Funny. Catch us next week when we meet co-host Tom Megalis and listen to the late, great Lenny Bruce. Special thanks to executive producers Joan Andrews and Michael D'Aloya, producer Sarah Wilgroup, and audio engineer Eric Coltnow. Don't you know that you're a grown-up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. (laughs) This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.